Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Tracy Ray from the employment law firm of Baron Lehman. Tracy says that OPB sponsorship is a great way to support the community and connect with Baron Liebman's clients. From the Gert Boyle studio at OPB, this is Think Out Loud. I'm Dave Miller. There is a lot that researchers still don't know about volcanoes, but they do expect volcanic eruptions to coincide more often with other natural disasters like floods and wildfires as the Earth continues to warm. Research from Portland State University shows that the increasing frequency of extreme weather events means they are more likely to occur occur at the same time as a volcanic eruption, creating compound disasters that could challenge emergency management officials. The study is part of a new collection of scientific essays focused on how volcano science has evolved over the past 20 years and where it might go in the next 10 years. Jonathan Fink is a professor of geology at PSU. He co-edited the collection and he joins us now. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks, Dave. Very nice to be here. So I want to start with uh, the paper you wrote not too long ago, exploring the, the intersection of volcanoes and other natural disasters. What's a recent example of that happening? Uh, The best example is Mount Pinatubo in the Philippines, which erupted in the early 90s, uh, had a a huge explosive eruption, uh, one of the largest of the 20th century. And that eruption happened to coincide with the arrival of a typhoon on in that part of the Philippines. So the eruption put out a huge volume of ash that coated everything in the vicinity. And then the monsoon came in with huge amount of rainfall generating mud. And and these mud flows then went throughout the the region, uh, flowing down the river channels and causing an additional amount of destruction. So that was probably the most graphic case we've had in recent years of how these two different um, caused disasters can coincide and cause even more of a problem for for society. That's kind of the, the, the physical reality of what happened. What lessons should we draw from it? Well, I think one of the, the lessons is that preparing for volcanic eruptions is getting more complicated because of these independent uh, problems that could be around because of climate change. So the people who normally would study volcanoes or volcanologists like like myself who learn about how geology works and how a volcano gets active and quiets down, we don't normally study the weather or um, flooding or other kinds of uh, natural disasters that might be coinciding uh, with with the eruptions. And so I think one of the, the main things is that the training needs to be broader and the the people who are going to be responsible for the societal responses to volcanic eruptions need to be able to think about other activities that are going on and be able to communicate with the people who are responsible for addressing those. Hmm. So, I mean, this is the the climate change-driven natural disasters, the potential for them increasingly to happen at the same time as a volcanic eruption. But could climate change itself impact the likelihood of particular eruptions? Yes. And this is something, although it's been uh, appreciated for a number of decades, uh, study of this kind of relationship between climate change causing volcanic eruptions uh, is relatively recent. There's been a lot of study of how eruptions can affect climate 
particularly by throwing ash up into the upper levels of the atmosphere and the stratosphere and then reflecting sunlight away, which can cause the Earth's surface to cool. Just but so I understand that, this is actually yeah. so and, – and that's different from – carbon dioxide or other even more powerful heat trapping gases where the light can go through but then the heat can't can't escape you're, you're saying that from major volcanic eruptions they actually prevent the, the incoming solar radiation from some of it from heating the earth right and one of the best examples is the same eruption i mentioned of mount pinatubo in the philippines which um was responsible for lowering the temperature in the northern hemisphere for two years. It was a detectable uh, decrease. I was living in Phoenix, Arizona at the time, and the following summer um, was noticeably cooler than than others, especially if you look from a statistical standpoint. So it's uh, there's sulfur in the magma that erupts, and some of that the sulfur particles and sulfur gases get thrown up into um, into space and they can reflect sunlight very effectively that's a kind that, of natural that. phenomenon i think that that would be geoengineers um dream of when, when they talk about actually um decreasing the amount of sunlight that's that's hitting the earth right exactly and in fact uh there was a report out of the white house two days ago uh, talking about this kind of geoengineering, things that that we as a society could do to try to, on a massive scale, um, interfere with the heating that's going on from the the CO two buildup that's happening around the planet. We it's could also quite, burn fewer fossil fuels. <laughs> exactly, and we could do a lot of other things that would that would be less risky. Um, we we had a I had a paper about ten years ago, talking about how one method of geoengineering would be if all the cities in the world did the kinds of things that Portland was doing at the time in terms of trying to encourage more transit use and and uh, moving to uh, more renewable forms of of energy that that would be a kind of geoengineering that that wouldn't have all of the unintended consequences that we really can't figure out about putting artificial eruption clouds in the atmosphere or changing the chemical composition of the ocean because it might then be able to absorb more CO2, some of those kinds of things. But I had interrupted you as you were talking about what to me is actually the potentially surprising possibility of climate change affecting eruptions. I think of volcanic eruptions as just being about, you know, melted rock uh, under the surface of the earth somehow explosively or bubblingly coming up. How is it that a, a warming world could affect that? Well, there are two ways that have been suggested. One is by the melting of glaciers, and glaciers represent a considerable amount of weight that pushes down on volcanoes like at Mount Rainier um, or, or a little smaller amount at Mount Hood. And if you remove that weight, then the pressure that the magma body at depth is feeling is reduced, and that might make it easier for an eruption to occur. Oh, like if you have so, your finger on a balloon that has a tiny hole on it, and then you move your finger away. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And then the flip side of that is if sea level rises, the volcanoes that are either entirely under the ocean or on islands like in Hawaii, uh, they might have additional pressure put on the, the, the molten rock at depth, 
which might change the timing of the eruption. It's not likely to trigger a great increase or great decrease in eruptions. But one of the things that's key is that uh, volcanic eruptions can be triggered by very slight variations in the environment of, of the volcano. It's not like there's, but sometimes there are things like a big uh, earthquake that happens, which jiggles things up and, and allows the volcano to erupt. But in many cases, there's a very delicate balance and slight differences like from the tides or from rainfall, or in this case, from melting of glaciers or sea level rise could be enough to change when a volcano is likely to erupt and the type of eruption that you might get. What kinds of advances have there been in in terms of the observation and the the prediction ability of volcanologists to say, we think that this volcano is going to erupt at this time? Well, there are, there's, there's one thing to be aware of, it, which is that although we hear about eruptions fairly often, there haven't been that many of them that we have enough information to really understand what causes them to, to erupt. Uh, we have a relatively small number of eruptions that have been observed scientifically in the last hundred years or so. And so we're still figuring things out uh, and figuring out some pretty major questions like, why is this volcano going to erupt when it does? And when might that eruption stop? Those would seem to be the most obvious things that one would wanna know, but we still don't really have the answers to those kinds of questions. So to your point, what what have we learned? Uh, we're collecting more and more information from the volcanoes that are all around the Earth, using satellites, using instruments that can be um, distributed relatively inexpensively, using radio communication to bring those signals back to where they can be studied. So we're getting a much bigger database of volcanic eruption information, which then informs how we interpret future eruptions. The, the other main thing is that just as um, the internet has made communication of all types more effective and more widespread, the same is true for studying volcanoes. So it used to be that any given volcano would have one or a small number of scientists who would study it. And then they would publish papers and other people would look at those papers and learn from them and maybe comment on them on a scale of decades. Now you can have an eruption starting and you could get a thousand geologists from around the world and, and other uh, scientists and policymakers to all be working on that problem at the same time. And that really makes a large difference when we're trying to understand very complicated interdisciplinary problems that involve not just what the earth is doing, but how society is reacting to it, how things like climate change might be affecting those processes. Hmm. I understand that you finished your PhD in 1979, just a year before Mount St. Helens erupted. Yes. How did that affect the course of your entire career? It had a huge impact. Uh, when, when Mount St. Helens erupted on May 18th, 1980, I was visiting my parents in New York, uh, in the suburbs of New York, and I got a call from a friend at the U.S. Geological Survey saying, hey, this thing just happened and you should plan to get out here. My uh, PhD was about lava domes, which are features that come out after a big explosive eruption. Lava oozes out and can pile up over the, the vent area 
And then sometimes those domes can collapse and generate dangerous pyroclastic flows. So I had studied these things with prehistoric examples. Uh, and they were saying, no, this is happening right now. And you should get out here. So I, um, I was at Arizona State University at the time. And I wrote a small grant proposal to the National Science Foundation uh, with a couple of other colleagues. The, we all went up to St. Helens about three weeks after the May 18th eruption. And um, then over the following six years, after the explosions happened, uh, domes started growing in the crater of St. Helens. It grew for six years. I had uh, a student who studied that dome with me and with members of the U.S. Geological Survey. We got a number of publications out of it. We learned quite a bit from it. The other thing that happened was because that eruption was so visible in the United States, a number of students, uh, geology students, moved into studying volcanoes. And so when I became a professor uh, at ASU, there were a lot more students who were interested in studying with me than would have been the case 10 years earlier. Uh, and I think th stepping back to this question of how do we learn about how volcanoes erupt? In just 30 the, seconds. <laughs> sure. That, that was uh, the example that showed us how a very distinct uh, eruption like that could teach the entire field around the world about volcanic phenomena. Jonathan Fink, thanks very much. Thank you, Dave. Jonathan Fink is a professor of geology and a volcanologist at Portland State University.